You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, please open with me to the epistle of James in your New Testament. It's one of the smaller books towards the end of the New Testament, and we're in chapter five. And for the last seven weeks, we've been going through a study of the epistle of James called Faith in Motion. And today, we come to the end of that study. As you saw in the video earlier, next week, we're beginning a new study, which I'm really excited about. It's a study in which we're looking at kind of the things that create the biggest hurdles for people when it comes to fully embracing Christianity and the gospel. And we're gonna take... Uh, seven weeks to look at some of the biggest questions. We actually took a poll and asked people, hey, what, how would you finish this sentence? I could never believe in a God who. And we got over 100 responses from you guys and from other people you shared that with. And we were able to kind of put together and really define, okay, what are the issues that people really have when it comes to God? Whether they're already Christians and they say, hey, I'm a Christian, but I struggle with some stuff when it comes to God and the Bible. Or if they're not a Christian at all and they say, you know what, this is what's really stopping me from fully embracing Christianity. So we're going to address those things head on uh, over the next seven weeks. It's a great opportunity for you to invite friends and family. Maybe you look at that list. We've given you all the dates and all the topics on that uh, flyer in your bulletin, and you can just say, hey, I know somebody, and they need to be here for this week. Bring them along. We really encourage you to do that. But this week, we're in the epistle of James, and we're going to finish it up this week by looking at the last section of the book. So let's read some of the verses from that section, and then we'll what we're going to do is we're going to study through it verse by verse. So let's begin by reading James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you do not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a living word. Lord, it is active. It speaks to us today just as it spoke almost 2,000 years ago. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear. Open the eyes of our hearts and our minds that we might see and understand your word. But, Lord, that we would do what James tells us to do and not just stop with understanding, but move on to actually putting these things into practice in our lives. So, Lord, we ask that you would uh, help us in this way. Do this work in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. You know, we live in, uh, in pretty interesting times in, in a couple ways. Let me, let me tell you. You know, on the one hand, we live in a time of great prosperity and great wealth. Maybe you've seen all the uh, stuff about the economy right now, right? The uh, unemployment at like, uh, you know, lows that it hasn't been at in decades. Uh, on the other hand, we, you know, we have prosperity in the sense that we have a lot of technological advancements which have made our lives easier and more comfortable and safer. And yet, on the other hand, while we have all these things, we have prosperity, we have technology, on the other hand, experts tell us that we live in a time and in a place which is characterized ever increasingly by two things, hopelessness and isolation. Hopelessness and isolation. So in spite of the fact that our economy is doing great, technology is amazing, yet we, we're a society that struggles with these two things, hopelessness and isolation. Hopelessness is that sense that, okay, I might have a lot of stuff, but what is the purpose? What is the point? What is the meaning of my existence? What is the reason for me to get up in the morning or even go on? And isolation, you know, that's interesting because we live in a time which is dominated by communication. This is a communication age. We communicate all day long. We carry a phone in our pocket. We text, we email, we connect over social media constantly. And yet despite all our communication, despite the fact that we're always in touch with people, we feel more isolated and lonely than any other time in history. A survey taken in 2016 showed that nearly three quarters of Americans said that they feel lonely. Three quarters, guys, of Americans say they feel lonely like right now. Some writers have dubbed the time that we live in, they call it the age of loneliness. Loneliness, by the way, has been shown to have major detrimental effects on people. Here are just a few. Psychiatrists show how loneliness affects the way that your mind functions in detrimental ways. It can actually affect your brain chemistry. So not only does loneliness contribute to mental illness, but even beyond that, it actually affects your physical health. Uh, not only does loneliness contribute to depression, but it can also lead to heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. In fact, the Surgeon General issued a statement several years ago saying that perpetual loneliness has about the same effect on your body as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and it's actually worse for your body than obesity. And so here we are trying to be more healthy, get everybody to stop smoking, get everybody to exercise, and yet our society is increasingly lonely. And guys, literally, loneliness is killing us. Technologically, right, we have all these advances that we created to save us time. And now we're not busy anymore, right? Just the opposite, right? We are the busiest people in the history of the world, which means this, we work more and we rest less than any other society in the history of the world. And for what? Are we more productive? Yes. Do we get more stuff done? Absolutely. But what for? Like, what, what is the point of all of it? And we say, well, I don't have time to think about that because I've got stuff to do, right? But when you do actually stop, and, and people do stop and they think about it, it's, it's quite depressing and it leads to cynicism for a lot of people. It leads to a sense of hopelessness. One of the things I found in researching for our upcoming study is that the, the highest percentage of atheists, right, in any um, academic field is in the social sciences. Not in, not in the physical sciences that study like the universe. Actually, more than 50% of social, or sorry, physical scientists believe in the existence of, of God, 
But in the social sciences, that's where you have a lot of atheists. Why? Because what are the social sciences focused on? They're focused on studying questions of existence, existential questions like, why are we here? How do people behave? And they look at human beings and they look at life and they wonder, of course, apart from God, and they say, this is totally hopeless, totally meaningless, and they become cynical. And, and so the question is this. We live in this society that's increasingly hopeless, increasingly cynical, increasingly isolated, and it's hurting us. It's detrimental. And the question for you and me is, is there another way? Like, how can we break out of this? How can we avoid just becoming lonely, hopeless, depressed, cynical people? And guys, I've got good news for you. Here in the book of James, James tells us that there is another way to live. He gives us a blueprint. He gives us a vision for what a different kind of life looks like in light of the gospel because of what Jesus did in coming to us, in living the perfect life that he lived, in dying the sacrificial death, in rising again from the dead to make a way for us to go to heaven. What does all that mean for how we live our lives today? Does it mean that we can actually live in a way that is different than the way that other people live? Can we live as a countercultural body of people, right? As a group, as Christian people, can we live differently? James tells us, yes, we can. And he's going to show us a vision of what that looks like here in these verses. Here's what he's going to show us. James is going to show us that because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done for us, we can be three things. We can be doggedly hopeful. We can be consistently truthful and we can be intentionally engaged. We can be doggedly hopeful in a cynical world, we can be consistently truthful in a world where morality and truth is kind of, you know, flexible and flimsy. We can be intentionally engaged in a society that is so radically individualistic. So let's talk about this. You know, one of the, part of our vision for Whitefields, we've actually written this down. It's on our website and everything. Our vision is we want to create, we want to build and foster and a passionate, engaged community, a passionate, engaged, and spiritually healthy Christian community to influence Longmont and beyond. That's our vision. That's what we're all about. And the way we do that is by making disciples of Jesus through teaching the word of God and engaging in the mission of God. But I want you to think about some of those words, like passionate, engaged. What does it mean to be engaged? Well, we're going to talk about what it means to be passionate, engaged, and spiritually healthy. That vision, we see it all reflected here in James chapter 5, where he gives us a vision of a different way of living, a different kind of community that God has called us to be as sons and daughters of God and as brothers and sisters of one another. So first of all, doggedly hopeful. This is what we are called to be. This is what we can be because of the gospel. James begins this section in verse seven where he says this, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See, as Christians, there is something that sets us apart and makes us different. In the midst of a cynical world, we are doggedly hopeful people. Do you know that? As Christians, in the midst of however cynical the world might be, we are doggedly hopeful people. No matter how bad it gets, we still hold on to hope. If the economy crashes and we lose everything, if you lose your job and your house and your car and your cat and your dog, if you get bad news and a bad diagnosis, we still have hope. We hold on to that. And you say, why? Are we just optimistic people? We like to see the cup as half full. Well, you know, technically the cup is completely full because the other part is full of air, right? So the cup is always full in my opinion. But are we just optimistic people? Do we just like to see things in a positive way? Some people would say that the only way to be optimistic in this world is to bury your head in the sand and not face reality. 
Because if you deal with reality, there's no reason to be optimistic, right? Because look, eventually the economy's gonna crash and the environment's gonna go bad and the sun's gonna just stop, it's gonna burn out and we're all gonna die. Everything you own is going to break one day. Everybody you know is going to get sick and die one day. So what reason is there to be optimistic? But as Christians, here's the thing. We are able to look at the stark realities of life We don't bury our heads in the sand, but we look right in the face of the stark realities of life and we don't flinch and we don't lose hope. You know why? Why? Because we have hope. We have a distinct hope as Christians. And what is that hope? Well, James tells us right here, what is the hope we have as Christians? Here's what it is. James says, it is in the coming of the Lord. This is the hope that we have. So let me, let me ask this question for you. What is the coming of the Lord and how does it give us hope? Well, you could put it this way. Think with me on this. The Bible is essentially a tale of two kingdoms. The Bible is a tale of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and a kingdom called the kingdom of this world. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of darkness, right? So the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. The Bible tells this story from the beginning. In the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we see it all begins with the kingdom of God. We see the very first people, Adam and Eve. And what do we see? We see that they live in God's kingdom. What does that mean to live in God's kingdom? It means to live under the rule, under the authority, in that realm, in that space where God rules and everything is the way that he intends for it to be. And people revere him as God and look to him as God and treat him as king. Okay, so Adam and Eve, we see in the beginning of the Bible, they're living under God's rule in God's kingdom. And how does it portray life in God's kingdom there in in Eden, right? There in paradise. Well, we see that in God's kingdom, we see there that people live in relationship with God. We see that people live in harmony with each other and with nature. There's no sin, there's no shame, there's no death. It's truly paradise, not just the environment that they live in, but every aspect of it. But then in this story, this tale of two kingdoms, what happens? The people that God created, the people who are living under his rule, they rebel against him, they abdicate, they reject him as their king. Why? Because they want to be their own lords and masters. And guys, this isn't just their story. This is the story of every one of us who've ever lived, right? This is our story. We live this out. And so what do they do? They reject God as their king. They reject God's kingdom. They want to be their own lords and masters. But here's what happens. In a tragic twist, what happens? Instead of becoming kings and queens, they become slaves. And it turns out there is already a prince to this other kingdom, and he's not good. And we become slaves to sin, and we become condemned to death. But the story of the Bible, the great message of the gospel, the good news, is this story of how despite our rebellion, despite our rejection of this king and his kingdom, God, the great king, then he doesn't just say, fine, you guys take what you deserve. I'll treat you as the traitors that you are. No, what does he do? He comes to us. He pursues us. He makes a way for us to be forgiven of our trespass and welcomed back into his kingdom. Rather than treating us as traitors, he treats us as sons and daughters and he makes us that very thing. He makes us sons and daughters and even goes one step beyond that. He adopts us into his family. 
And the great promise of the Bible in this tale of two kingdoms is that the day is coming when the kingdom of this world will pass away and only God's kingdom will remain. Check out how the book of Revelation describes this in this great vision of the future of what is to come. Here's what it says in Revelation 11. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. I don't know about you guys, but that gives me goosebumps every single time I read it. At the end of the book of Revelation, it describes for us what it will be like in this time when God's kingdom comes in fullness and forever. It says that in that time, there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, no more sickness, and no more death. And once again, we will be in relationship with God, in harmony with each other, no more sin, no more shame, no more death forever. Now when Jesus came, think about this, this tale of two kingdoms, Jesus comes as an agent of the kingdom of God infiltrating and, and you know, coming in and infiltrating the kingdom of this world. And what does he do? He lays the foundation for the end of this kingdom and he lays the foundation for his kingdom which is yet to come. But here's what he does. He came and he established his kingdom and he said the kingdom of God is now among you right? But then he still talks about the kingdom as something which is to come. So which is it? Has the kingdom already come or has it not yet come? It's actually a, a term that's used in theological writings and circles. They say the time that we live in, that's exactly what it is. It's called already, but not yet. The kingdom is here already, and yet it's not here yet. What does that mean? It means that it's established in part, but it hasn't yet come in fullness, now, maybe you would say, well, well, wait a second. What do you mean, like, if we're experiencing the kingdom of God, if the kingdom of God is here right now, why do we still have to deal with things which you say don't belong in the kingdom of God, like sin and, and death and sickness and pain? Here's the reason. Because we live in this time when the kingdom has come in part and yet not in fullness. We still look forward to that time when it will come in fullness. We live in this interesting time after Jesus' first coming, yet before his second coming. See, when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he established his kingdom in part. Now, you may maybe ask the question, well, why did he do that? Why only in part? Why not in fullness? Why, why would he do something like that? There's a very good reason. Let me tell you what it was. Because right now, the door is open. We live in this time, this window of time where the door is open for people to come into God's kingdom, for people to receive his salvation and grace. See, Jesus in his first coming, he did a work of atonement for our sins. He made a way for us to be saved in his death and resurrection. But then after he died and resurrected, Jesus did something that even his closest disciples were totally taken aback by. They were surprised by. They didn't expect it he announced that he's going away. And they were like, what do you mean you're going away? Well, you're gonna establish your kingdom, right? And Jesus said, I'll establish my kingdom now in part, but when I return, I'm gonna come back one day and then I will establish my kingdom in fullness. And they asked him, Jesus, when will that happen? When are you going to restore the kingdom? Maybe you remember this from Acts chapter one. They asked him directly, Jesus, when is it gonna happen? 
Is it gonna be six months from now? Is it gonna be in a, in, in a week? Is it gonna be in 10 years? Is it gonna be in 100 years? Is it gonna be in 1,000 years? And here's what Jesus told them. He says this, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's what Jesus is saying. During this time, during this in-between time, between the time of his first coming when he made a way for salvation to be available to people and between his second, before his second coming when he will establish the kingdom finally in fullness, his followers are tasked with the task of spreading the good news of salvation and the kingdom of God throughout the world. That's what he said. You don't worry about the times and the dates that the Father's appointed. Here's what you worry about. I'm gonna put my spirit upon you and you're gonna be my witnesses all over the world. I'm giving you a mission so that people can hear and believe. Guys, that's the time that we live in right now. And during this time, we experience the kingdom in part, right? There are benefits of the kingdom that we experience here and now, but we look forward to the day when Jesus will return and all darkness will end and sickness and death will stop forever. That's the glorious hope that we have. And all things will be made right. James is encouraging these Christians to cling to that hope, no matter what is going on in their lives, to hold on to that knowledge, that no matter what life throws at you, one day God is going to come and he's going to set all things right. This is the glorious hope that we have in Jesus. In Titus, Paul calls it the blessed hope of the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. James goes on to say this in verse seven, the end of verse seven, he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient for it until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know, we can learn a lot from farmers when it comes to patience and when it comes to waiting in faith. You see, farmers actually need faith, don't they? Because what they do is they plant a seed in the ground and they water it, but they don't see whether or not it's working for a little while. It takes some time. It takes some waiting. There's a time that goes on where they're plowing the ground, where they're planting the seed, where they're watering, and they're waiting, and they don't know if anything's going to happen. Now, their, their hope and their faith isn't just based on nothing, right? It's not just pie in the sky. It's not like they're out there, you know, throwing rocks into their field and expecting, you know, crops to come up. No, they, they have a, a reasonable faith based on prior experience, based on prior results, right? There's a reason for their faith. They have every reason to trust that this will indeed happen because it's happened before, right? And so they plant the seed, they water it, they work. Even before they see the results, even when they don't see any results, they keep working and they keep working diligently. Farmers, here's another thing about farmers, they never give up. Do you know that? Like if you're a farmer, you can't just, uh, you know, plant your crop and then water it and plow it. And then like a couple months later, you're like, you know what? I think I'm gonna plant something else. No, like once that thing's in the ground, you can't pull it up. You gotta be in it for the long haul. You gotta be in it until you're committed, you're all in, you're bought in completely until harvest time comes. Now, what does James mean when he says, establish your hearts? He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, something we've seen in our study of James is that James makes a lot of references to Jesus' very most famous teaching, which is the Sermon on the Mount. 
James says, we've seen it throughout this letter, that James references the Sermon on the Mount over and over again. And, and here's how Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount. I want to show you this, another reference to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 by saying these words. He said, whoever hears my words and does them is like a wise man who uh, built his house on the rock. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew against it, the house did not fall because it was founded, it was established on the rock. On the other hand, he says, those who hear my words and don't do them are like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the winds came and the rain and the flood, the house fell and great was the fall of it. What is Jesus saying? He's saying this, in your life, crises are bound to happen. In your life, it is inevitable that at some point, difficulty and tragedy will touch your life. The storms of this life will hit you at some point. And the question is this, when the storms of life come, will they destroy you? Will they take you down? Will they wreck you? Or will you be able to weather those storms? And how you answer that question depends on what foundation your life is built on. What foundation is your life built on? And that's a question we need to ask ourselves. What is the foundation of my life? Is it a solid and firm foundation? Is your heart established and founded on the hope of the gospel? If it is, then guys, when things in this life happen that are outside of your control, when the storms of this life happen, when there's a drought they're not going to destroy you. They're not gonna take you out and take you down. You're gonna be able to weather those storms if your life is established and founded on the word of God and doing the word of God like Jesus says. And James tells us, therefore, establish our hearts. Establish it on what? He tells us, on the hope of Jesus' return when our redemption will be complete and all things will be set right. And so what happens if you live this way? Well, he describes it. What happens if you live in this expectation, this hope of the return of Jesus and the fullness of the kingdom of God? Here's what happens. He says in verse nine, one of the things that happens is that you stop grumbling against each other. Why? Because you know that God is the judge and you don't have to be, right? And so rather than grumbling against one another as, as fellow believers, as Christians, we remember this, that we're on the same team and we have the same mission. And so rather than tearing each other down, we wanna build each other up. We wanna link arms together so that we can carry out this mission that God's given us together. Verse 10, he says this, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We did an eight-week series based on this one verse at the beginning of this year. And so I'm not gonna go into that right now, but it's called Remember the Prophets. And if some of you weren't here, I encourage you, go on our website, you can listen to it for free. You can go on our podcast and you can listen to all these messages. I don't know about you who were here, but I, I love that series. I grew a lot through it and I hope you did too. He says in verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is an interesting verse because did you know this is the only reference to Job in the entire New Testament? This is the only reference in the entire New Testament to the Old Testament book and character of Job. You know, back in the Old Testament, there's a whole book dedicated to Job. Job was a wealthy person and God allowed him over the course of a very short period of time to lose almost everything he had, his business, 
his family, his investments, his health. He lost it all. And Job is an example to us, James tells us, and we know from the book, of what it looks like to trust in God even when you don't understand why certain things are happening to you. That's what's so curious about the book of Job. The whole book is about Job and his friends asking the question, why? Why is God allowing these difficulties to happen to Job? And what's so interesting about the book is it never really answers the question, why? But that's important, isn't it? Because you know what? In this life, you're not always gonna get the answer to that question. There are gonna be things that happen to you and you're never gonna know this side of eternity why those things happened. And so I think that the book of Job is just so honest. It's so real. And in that way, it actually gives me more comfort that, that I can see a person like Job who never got his question answered, and yet he said, you know what? Even if I never know the reason why, I will bless the Lord. He never knew God's purpose in allowing these things to happen, but he trusted God even in the face of pain and loss. And at one point, Job reveals the secret to why he's able to do that. How is he able to have so much faith in, in the face of so much adversity? Why is he able to continue trusting God even when things are hard? Here's what Job says. He reveals, he, he lays his cards on the table. He says, this is why I'm able to continue trusting God even if my questions aren't answered and things are happening to me. He says in chapter 19, here's why. Because I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I will see him for myself. And my eyes will behold him and not another. My heart faints within me. What is Job saying? Job's saying, look, my hope is not that I will have my best life now. My hope is in the life that is to come. Because this life, guys, even if I had all that prosperity, even if I had all that wealth, you know what? It's not gonna last. This life is not gonna last. It's gonna pass away. But one day, I'm gonna stand before God. And the thought of that makes my heart faint within me. He says, that's what gets me excited. That's what I'm looking forward to. The kingdom which is to come. That's what I'm living for. And he says, you know what? I came into this world naked and naked I will leave this world. God can give and God can take away. But no matter what, I will trust him. Even when I don't get the answers to my questions, I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Guys, that's what real faith looks like. You know that? That's what real faith is. It's that hope of God's kingdom. That's what hope in God's kingdom looks like. You know, Charles Spurgeon had this interesting thing that he, he said about Job. He said this, you know, when it comes to Job and why he was able to trust God, think about it like this. If someone was coming towards you with a knife, how would you feel? Well, it would depend on who that person is and what the setting is that you're in, Right? It would change how you feel. So for example, if you're in a dark alley and someone's coming at you with a knife to rob you, well, you're gonna feel probably uh, not very happy about that. Like you're gonna feel anxious. This person's trying to hurt you. But on the other hand, if the person coming at you with a knife is a doctor, a surgeon, and you're in an operating room, well, you might be anxious about the operation, but you understand that that person is not there to hurt you or harm you. That surgeon is only there. He only cuts you in order to help you. He only cuts you in order to heal you, to remove a cancer or to reset something that's broken. In the same way, like Job, right, when hardship and difficulty come into our lives, we remember that every bit of that thing had to pass through the loving hands of God before it ever reached you. 
And since we know God's character, that he is for us and not against us, and we can trust that even the painful things of this life, he will use them for good and for his purposes. He will redeem them. But ultimately, like Job, our hope is not in wealth and prosperity in this life. Our hope is in the full life which is to come when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom in fullness. We, we establish our hearts by making that hope the foundation of our lives. Now let's move on to the next one. Consistently truthful. This is what the gospel enables us to be. Consistently truthful in verse 12. In a world where ethics are flexible, where truth is relative, the gospel enables us to be consistently truthful people. James tells us in verse 12, don't swear by any of these things. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, there's a practice that actually James is alluding to here, which Jesus himself alluded to, again, in the Sermon on the Mount. And James, once again, is taking notes directly from the Sermon on the Mount. See, what they would do in the Jewish culture in Jesus' time is they had this idea that there were some oaths that were binding and some oaths that were not binding. And if you swore to God, then that was a binding oath. You had to do it. But if you swore to anything other than God, then it was kind of like crossing your fingers when you promised to do something. You were kind of giving yourself permission to lie, permission to not keep your promise. And so what the Jews did is that they, they came up with all these ways. They would say, well, I swear by the throne of God. So it sounds like you're swearing by God, but you're kind of not. And they would do all these silly things. And Jesus addresses that directly. But again, Jesus and James, they say this, look, as people who are part of God's kingdom, who are awaiting his kingdom as his unique people on earth, we need to have more integrity than this. He says, knock it off. This isn't appropriate for God's people. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Again, straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. This is found in Matthew chapter five. Now we have our own version of this in our culture in a couple different ways, right? On the one hand, our culture tends to be very non-committal, right? Like whenever people ask us to do something, we give a firm maybe, right? Like maybe, like we're like, I'll, I wouldn't miss it for the world unless something else comes up, and then I definitely won't be there, right? Like, we're, we're very non-committal as a culture. We're afraid to let our yes be yes and our no be no. But another way that our culture does this is in this idea that truth is relative and morality is flexible. And, and in contrast to that, we as Christians are called to be people of integrity, people who are consistently truthful, even when it puts us at a disadvantage. You know, one of the Ten Commandments is this, do not bear false witness against other people. And it tells us there basically this, don't lie. Don't lie. Why? Well, on the one hand, lying is bad, right? You, you, what a tangled web we weave when we practice to deceive, right? Like, so it creates this web of deception, which is bad for us. But it's not just bad for us, guys. You know, there's more to it than that. One of the reasons why God forbids lying is because it goes against who he is and his character. He's a God of truth, and his people are called to be people of truth. We're told in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, that we should speak the truth in love. I don't know if you've ever had somebody tell you the truth in a not loving way, but it can be brutal, right? It can hurt. If somebody tells you the truth without love, that hurts a lot of times, right? Now, on the other hand, if, you, if you're all love and no truth, well, that's just sentimentality. It's like, you know, um, there's no substance to it. But truth and love together is powerful. It's life-giving. 
And Paul tells us in Philippians chapter two, he says this, if you live with integrity in this world, you will stand out. You will shine like a star in the night sky. You will stand out if you are consistently truthful, even when it puts you at a disadvantage. That is a countercultural way to live. Now, why would we do that? Why would we tell the truth, even if it puts us at a disadvantage? James tells us here, he tells us why. Because we live our lives before God. He says the judge is at the door, right? And he's the one we're trying to please. Sometimes we spend so much of our time, don't we? Thinking about what other people think about us. But it's important to be reminded of this. The gospel sets you free from that desperate need to have other people approve of you and have other people accept you. Do you know that? That the gospel says this, that in Christ you are accepted by God. You are approved by God. He looks at you and says, you are my child in whom I'm well pleased in Christ. And therefore, it sets you free from that desperate need to go out and seek other people's approval and tell them anything they want to hear or be anything they want you to be just so they'll accept you. The gospel sets you free from that and allows you to live counterculturally and be consistently truthful. And let's look at this last piece here. Intentionally engaged. We can be a people who are intentionally engaged and what does this mean? This is a reference to community. Now here in these last few verses, James describes a way of relating to each other that is so countercultural that guys, I think if you read this really honestly, probably all of us in here, it would make us feel uncomfortable. This is so against the grain of how we tend to live as a culture. Our society is so radically individualistic. We're so worried about our privacy. We don't want anybody to get up in our business. We try to keep people at arm's length, right? Like, well, I'll know you, but at least, you know, give me some distance. I'm only gonna let you get so close. But here in James chapter five, verses 13 through 20, James paints a picture of us of what Christ-centered community looks like. Here's what we see in this. We see people confessing their sins to each other. It's so different, right? We tend to think, hey, when I confess my sins, I confess my sins to God. No, James is saying, yeah, keep doing that. But here's the other thing I want you to do. Confess your sins to each other. He, he says this, when somebody wanders away from the faith or from the community, other people go after them and pursue them and bring them back. And when someone's sick, People reach out and they ask for prayer when they have needs. And when something good happens, they have people around them to celebrate and, and rejoice in the good news with them. Here's what we learned from this section. We all need a place. You need a place where you can be three things, where you can be genuinely known, lovingly supported, and honestly challenged. You need a place where you can be genuinely known, lovingly supported, and honestly challenged. You need a place where you can be genuinely known. Why? Because anonymity breeds sin. Did you know that in the Bible, one of the metaphors throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, one of the metaphors the Bible uses for sin is mold. It talks about mold as a picture of sin. You know, it's one of the things about mold, right? Where does mold grow the best? In the dark. Mold grows the best in the dark. And how can you kill mold? By bringing it into the light of day. That kills mold. Sin works the same way. If you keep your sin under wraps, if you keep it a secret, if nobody knows about it, those are the perfect conditions for it to grow and for it to eventually take over your life. In Ephesians chapter five, Paul says this interesting thing. He says this, bring the deeds of darkness into the light and expose them. What does that mean? Why? Why should we bring the deeds of darkness into the light? Why? Because when you bring 
these things into the light, sin in your life, when you bring it out of the closet and expose it to the light of day and tell somebody about it, what does it do? It loses its grip on you. It loses a lot of its power on you. And so you need a place where you are genuinely known and honestly challenged, where people know you enough, they know your weaknesses, they know your strengths, and they know you well enough where they can honestly challenge you, where you can be loved and supported also and prayed for. See, here's the tricky thing about sin. When you get caught up in sin, people tend to hide. They tend to withdraw from community. And what he's saying here is we need a community that will not just, not just a community where we can confess our sins, but we need a community where we are genuinely known. Why? So that when we get into something and we start to hide and withdraw, there will be people who come after us, who don't leave us alone, who bother us. You know that there's this verse where Paul says this. He says, spur each other on to love and good works. You ever think about that word spur? Did you know that in Greek, it literally says agitate, right? That's what a spur does, right? It pokes a horse, agitates them, gets them going, right? That's the idea. Agitate each other, bug each other, be all up in each other's business. Don't leave each other alone. Agitate each other to love and good works. Keep going after each other, pursue each other. Say, hey, where have you been? You haven't been around. What's going on? Are you okay? It's somebody who cares enough about you. They genuinely know you. They lovingly care for you and they honestly challenge you. Both of those things are so foreign to us, right? They make us even feel uncomfortable thinking about doing those things, right? Being that open and honest with people that you would tell them about your sins, being that vulnerable and being that committed to somebody that you're gonna go after them and pursue them even though they might reject you. But I want you to notice how much hope and how much joy these verses convey. This is countercultural, but it leads to our joy. Guys, we talked in the beginning. This is where isolation gets us. Mental illness, depression, all of these detrimental things, even health problems. But this is so countercultural and it leads to joy. You need to be genuinely known and honestly challenged. But you also need a place where you can be lovingly supported. And James paints that picture for us here of Christian community in which people are praying for each other when they're suffering. They're rejoicing in people's successes. He says in verse 14, is any one of you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church to pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, there are a few things in this verse that I wanna point out to you. First of all, notice that it presupposes that the person in question is part of a church. Now, you might just overlook that, but that's significant. It says that there's a church and that church has some sort of structure that includes elders. And the expectation is that if you are a Christian, then you should belong to a church that has structure and has elders. Again, I just say this to point out because it's so countercultural. There's so much in our culture that says, hey, you know, your relationship with God is just a one-on-one -on -one thing between you and God. It's, it's you know, church participation is completely optional. It's kind of like joining a interest group or a club of people who share your same interest, but it's completely optional. And the Bible would say, what are you talking about, right? Like that is that idea that a relationship with God is just between you and God, that's actually foreign to the Bible. The Bible would be like, what are you talking about? You've imposed your individualism onto something that's not represented in the Bible. The Bible would say your relationship with God is between you and God and between you and the people that you're in community with. James puts the initiative, secondly, the other thing I wanna point out to you, James puts the initiative on the sick person to reach out for help. See, I think that many of us, our tendency is we like to help other people, but we don't like to be the person who needs help, right? Of course. And it's humbling to ask for help, but James is encouraging us, 
Humble yourselves, take the initiative, ask for prayer when you need something. The next thing is this whole idea of anointing with oil. What's this? Well, in the Old Testament, the oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so it's possible that what James is talking about, they would anoint with oil as a symbol or a sign of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to, to heal. But there's another possibility that's, that's very interesting. It's actually supported by other parts of the Bible. And that's this, that in those days, oil was considered to have medicinal value. And so they would do this thing where they would give oil massages to people who were sick. So oil, you know, would be mixed with different herbs. It would create what we call ointments nowadays. They would massage these into the skin of sick people, and it was to have a medicinal effect. And there are actually two places in the Bible where anointing with oil, these oil massages, this application of oil is referenced in regard to medical use. And so it's very likely that what James is essentially saying here is, is this. If someone's sick, pray for them and get them good medical care. Right? I think we'd agree with that. We pray for people and we get them medical treatment. James goes on, he says, the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, they will be forgiven. Now there's a lot of debate over this verse, right? Is James talking about physical healing or is James talking about eternal salvation? And most scholars would say he's talking about both. You might remember that with Jesus, a lot of times when he healed people, he also talked about their spiritual condition. And so this idea that the spiritual and the physical are much more connected than the way that we like to make a straight delineation between them. But the ultimate goal of prayer, or, sorry, let's put it this way. The immediate goal of this prayer is for that person to, the person's body to be healed. But the ultimate goal of these prayers is for the salvation of their soul and so that one day they can experience the full and total healing in the resurrection when Jesus returns. Finally, James encourages us this. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and he reminds us of Elijah. And here's the point, Elijah's prayers were effective, not because Elijah was something greater, he was made of different stuff than you and I. Elijah's prayers were effective because Elijah prayed persistently to a powerful God. It wasn't Elijah who accomplished these things, it wasn't even Elijah's prayers that accomplished these things. Guys, it was God who was requested and then acted. And it reminds us of something that James told us about in chapter four, that there are times when God waits for us to ask him before he asks. So let us be people who ask in prayer. We need a place where we are genuinely known, lovingly supported, and honestly challenged. We believe that you will never become who God desires you to be apart from committed Christian community. And so I just wanna ask you right now, do you have that kind of community where you're genuinely known, where you're honestly challenged, and where you're lovingly supported? I'm gonna give you my two cents. You will not get that just by coming on Sunday mornings. Now, I know that you get some of it by coming on Sunday mornings, but I don't think you're gonna get it by coming on Sunday mornings in fullness, just by coming to church, coming in, listening to me, going out, and the rest. This is why we encourage everybody at this church to do two things. We want you to join a group and join a team. Join a group and join a team. A community group where we gather weekly to pray and study the Bible together and a service team where you're able to use your gifts and pour out into other people. 
Why? Not because we need stuff done. It's because we know that this is good for you. It's good for you to help you become a disciple of Jesus. That's where you're gonna build that kind of community that's gonna help you grow. It's gonna take some effort on your part. It might require you doing things that are outside of your comfort zone, but it's gonna be really good for you and it will help you grow. So let me just conclude in this way. Here's what's interesting about all these things he talks about this Christ-centered community that he describes. All the things he describes here are things that families do, aren't they? Like families rejoice together when somebody gets a promotion. Families mourn together when there's a loss, when somebody's hurting. Families care for each other when somebody's sick or has a need. And the message of the gospel is this. God has made us family. And there's two aspects of that saying, isn't there? On the one hand, God has made us family in the sense that because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we, if we receive that gift of grace, that gift of salvation, God adopts us into his family. He places his love on us and we become his children. He makes us his family. But on the other hand, it also means this, that as sons and daughters of God, we become brothers and sisters of one another. So he makes us family together. You see, Jesus is the ultimate example of faith in motion, of what we've been talking about. Faith means trusting God enough to do what he says. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He obeyed the Father. He came to earth. He sacrificed his life for us. And we are called to follow in the footsteps of our great brother, Jesus, to obey our Father and use these lives he has given us to serve one another. So as you go from here today, may you take hold firmly to the hope of the gospel. And may we be a community of people who are doggedly hopeful, who are consistently truthful, and who are intentionally engaged. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for these great truths. We thank you for the hope that we have in you, Jesus. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that no matter what circumstances we face in this life, we can be doggedly hopeful people because of what you have done for us and who you are. And so, Lord, truly help us to be this kind of community that's described here, one that is consistently truthful and intentionally engaged in each other's lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to step out beyond our comfort zone into that area where we begin to grow. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to do all these things that we read in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.